This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. We're wanting to save 250 preborn babies this January by offering free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. You can help by calling 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you, everybody, for joining us again. One of the most famous Bible verses when it comes to parenting has to be Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. But when we think about the proper training of our children, how many of us moms in particular think about our Christian duty to train them in apologetics? In fact, teaching apologetics to our kids is one of the most important things that we can do for them, especially at a time when so many young people are leaving the church and so few are maintaining a biblical worldview. What can a mom do about it? We're going to find out today from Hillary Morgan Ferrer. She's founder of Mama Bear Apologetics and author of the book we're going to be talking about, also called Mama Bear Apologetics. Hillary, great to have you with us today. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. Uh, thank you for having me. You are so welcome. It's great to have you here. So tell us a little bit about Mama Bear Apologetics and what it means to be both a mama bear and an apologist at the same time. <laughs> Uh, so the, the phrase Mama Bear Apologetics came to me several years ago, and it was honestly one of those things where you get a word stuck in your head and you can't quite get it out. Um, there's a church called Crossroads Bible Church and there was a that I went to as a kid, and there was a woman who was giving her testimony about uh, what happened with her kids. Her name was Jody Weiss. We have a podcast on her on the, on the podcast, and she is mentioned in the beginning, uh, I think the introduction of the book. But she was talking about how she had taken her children to Awanas, that they had uh, rededicated their life when they got to college. And she was just horrified to find out when uh, her youngest son walked away from the faith after having an atheist boss basically tell him that Jesus was basically the same thing as Santa Claus. <sighs> and she was just asking that question. She was desperate. What could I have done differently? And I watched her through this uh, several week series that my husband and I were at the church kind of helping out with an apologetic series. I listened to her and watched her as she just studied, studied, studied in things that she would never have studied before, but it was for the sake of her child. And I remember watching that and thinking, that's something, that 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 needs a name. What is that? And I thought, that's like a mama bear instinct, this cute and cuddly and sweet, and in her case, you know, fitness instructor, you know, not, not necessarily uh, going out and, you know, doing philosophy and theology, but... When her child was threatened, she got up and did what she would never do for herself, and she learned all those things so that she could have the tough conversations with him. And I thought, that is what this world needs, is we need a world of mama bears who see that their children are in danger of the ideologies that are being spread throughout culture and who stand up and say, oh, no, no, not my kid. Yep. And they are going to go and teach themselves apologetics so that they can have these difficult conversations. It's totally true. I, I understand that instinct very well as a mom. And it, there's something about looking at how the world is having its effect on your own children, especially today when things are so dire, culturally speaking and morally speaking, that makes mm -hmm. you say, I better do something. I'm the mom. So when you're looking across the spectrum and you're seeing the effects of this culture on our kids, what are some of your greatest concerns specifically? I would say one of my greatest concerns would be their ability to know what truth is, that truth exists, and that it can be found. And if so, how do we find it? Yeah. 
And I would say that that is a strong theme throughout the entire Mama Bear book. We, we talk everywhere from uh, naturalism. Do, do we get all our truth from science? Is it not true unless it can be proven in a lab? And you would be surprised at how many people will not accept something as like, well, you know, true for everybody unless there's some peer-reviewed journal about it, you know, that <laughs> right. are on that topic. Right. Uh, you, you also see things like uh, postmodernism, which is really undermining their ability to even think that finding truth is possible. What what you've probably heard, I, I mean, just ad nauseum at this point, is people have stopped talking about the truth. And what have they started talking about? My truth. My truth, yep. exactly. Yep. And so it's this idea that truth can be just based on what you think it is, and my truth is my truth, and no one can say anything about it. Well, okay, sure. Well, then how do we even get to that truth? And this is where we go into maybe the emotionalism chapter of if I feel it, it's true. And the stronger I feel it, the more true that it is. And if I want to convince you that something's true, then I need to make you feel as emotions as strong as mine. And then you'll see the truth, too. And, and this is something that has creeped into our churches. This isn't just even in... Um, this isn't just even in the culture. We see this happening in the church, where the church is trying to convince people of the truth of Jesus Christ by kind of manipulating people into an emotional experience. Yes. Even this, this concept of, if I look at when people, when they're first thinking to say is, I want to tell you my testimony. So yes. first off, that tells me, I mean, not that telling your testimony is a bad thing. I think we should all have a testimony and we should all tell it. But number one, it puts us as the, the main character right off the bat. Uh, number two, you're trying to show them a lot of times how this emotionally thing kind of worked for me. Mm. Uh, instead of you look at what testimonies were in the first century, and they were saying, let me tell you what I have seen and heard and what Christ did. Yes. Yes. Well, uh, and it's it, this yeah. is a problem. I agree with you completely on what you're saying, because when you think about the average kid's experience growing up in church, and I can think of a lot of experiences that I even had when I was growing up, there are a lot of emotionally based tactics that are used that are well-meaning. Mm-hmm. You know, your youth pastor yeah. who says, let's have this game or this, this, you know, let's have some fun time here. And then you compliment it by sending kids off to camp and everything is fun. And then you have a really emotional time by the campfire. And, you know, sometimes there's a lot of pressure on kids. Well, have you been bad this week? Are you sinning? Are you doing, you know, and it's not apologetics based. I think that's what I'm trying to say. And even if it's well-meaning, there are a lot of people who I think have had that experience where it really is very emotional. Even you think about some of the youth events, it's very music driven. And I love music and I love hymns and I love, you know, praise and worship. That's awesome. But is that part of the problem, do you think, Hillary, that we are not as apologetics based as we ought to be, even in some of these church activities that we send our kids to? Absolutely. And and I I don't want to negate the power of really having, really meeting Jesus face to face. Because, I mean, I I would, I think we're hard pressed to find anywhere in scripture where someone met Jesus face to face and didn't have someone of an emotional experience. Because, I mean, that's the God of the universe that I've just met face to face, that's going to be an emotional experience. So we can't say that, okay, well, we just need to put all our emotions and lock them in a box and that's bad. No, no, no. We have to recognize, though, that the scripture says that the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? And uh, we, we talk about in the emotional emotionalism chapter that emotions are great, but they have to be 
centered around something kind of like compasses. We say a compass, you have to magnetize a compass in order for it to point to true north. Right. And if you don't magnetize it, it'll point in any direction. It'll tell you it's north and it's not. Um, but our, our emotional compasses need to be, uh, I guess, magnetized by scripture, reality, and truth. Good. That's and excellent. If we, mm-hmm, And I think that's where apologetics comes in. It's, it's not saying, is it emotions or is it apologetics? No, it's saying uh, apologetics can be the thing that magnetizes your emotional compass to where you can actually trust your emotions in the first place. But if you can't trust your emotions... And all we're doing is pointing people towards emotion. And that's just a recipe for disaster. Right, right. Well, you know, you think, for example, the reaction of the disciples when they saw the risen Christ and they realized it was Jesus. The fact Mm -hmm. of the resurrection really was what hit them. And then the emotional response came as a result of the truth. So in many respects, it seems when we're dealing with our kids, that's really what the objective is. We give them truth that is so awesome that there will be an emotional reaction, but it's not just emotion. Would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, I think it kind of is. I think in some ways we're trying to get the cart before the horse. We've actually seen these examples of someone coming face to face and having this uh, emotional experience with Christ, and we have mistaken the emotion as being the transforming process. So we think, okay, if we want this transformation to take place, let's focus on that emotion, because that's what's doing it. No, it's like we're missing what caused that emotion. And so I think we talk about it that emotions are great followers, but they're horrible leaders. (laughs) Uh, And so if we are focusing on the thing that's supposed to follow, thinking that we have now captures the essence of what of what that message is that we're trying to say. We've missed it. I, I see the exact same problem happening when people talk about uh, the fruit of the Spirit, that the fruit of the Spirit is not supposed to be something that we conjure up in ourselves, and that's kind of what makes us better or worse Christians. It's more like following Christ, that the fruit is the response to following Christ, and we focus on the response instead of on the thing that elicited the response. Very good. Well, we're going to pause for a very quick break. Hillary Morgan Ferrer is with us. Mama Bear Apologetics is her book. We'll come back on Janet Meffer today after this. The healthcare open enrollment period has ended. Did you miss it? Don't go a whole year without having a healthcare program. Sign up with Liberty HealthShare. As a Christian healthcare sharing ministry, Liberty HealthShare is not insurance, so you can still sign up. In fact, you can sign up any time of year, and there are no contracts. Starting as low as $199 a month, Liberty HealthShare has memberships for singles, couples, and families, so you can choose the ideal program for your situation. Plus, Liberty HealthShare has no network, so you're free to pick your own doctors, hospitals, and providers. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Go to libertyhealthshare.org JMT for more information. libertyhealthshare.org JMT. Hi, I'm Kevin Sorbo. I wanted to invite you to offer your full support for the ministry of Preborn and its leader, Dan Steiner. 
The team at Preborn is very focused and very successful at saving preborn babies from abortion. Now get ready to write down the phone number and the website so you can join the Preborn team. Join Kevin Sorbo and me, Janet Mefford, as we support Preborn. The mission at Preborn is to supply pregnancy centers throughout America with sonograms. Ultrasounds are a game changer when it comes to saving babies' lives. You see, when an abortion-minded woman sees her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, she's 80% more likely to keep her baby. Your gift of $140 will cover the cost of five ultrasounds. All donations are tax deductible. You can help save a baby's life by donating to Preborn. To donate, call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today, and now here's Janet. Welcome back. It's great to have you with us and great to have with us Hillary Morgan Ferrer. She is author of Mama Bear Apologetics, Empowering Your Kids to Challenge Cultural Lies. And you can check them out also at mamabearapologetics.com. This is such important information, Hillary, I think, especially for the moms who are listening and who really have the same heart that you do. I want to reach my kids with something deeper than maybe I've been doing in the past. What do you think are the primary biblical issues that moms need to be equipped to explain to their kids from the Bible? In other words, where do you start and what should you focus on when you begin to do apologetics with your kids? Mm. I think one of the primary things is learning how to see the good and the bad and everything. And I'm not saying I'm, I'm going to use this and say the Bible is the exception of that. But even the Bible, you have to see what the intention is. Because like, if you read the Old Testament thinking this is all my this is all uh, uh, truths that I'm supposed to emulate, you're, you're going to probably go off in a weird direction. Um, the Old Testament even itself is kind of this evidence of, of blowing it over and over again. So you have to see things for what they are. So I think one of the things that happens with kids is that parents have a tendency to want to categorize everything as saying all safe and all dangerous. You know, this show is good. That show is bad. This show is Christian. That show is not Christian. This is a Christian band. That's not a Christian band. So this is how we categorize things in order to tell you how you can learn truth, because we do implicitly recognize that our kids are picking up on messages everywhere. So, you know, I think it's a good thing that we're trying to make sure that the places that they're picking up on messages are going to be things that are good and um, affirming things that are in Scripture. However, that being said, I think one of the things, and people a lot of times don't think of this necessarily as apologetics, and I think that's where our book is actually different than a lot of apologetics books, is we're trying to teach kids how to sift through everything in terms of, is this biblical or is this not biblical, and which part of the Bible is this? Is this something that's supposed to, is it prescriptive or is it descriptive? Yeah. Is it something that the Bible is showing us a bad example and we shouldn't emulate it, right. or the Bible is showing us a good example? So even having those categories in our minds. And so I, I think that what happens is when we divide the world into safe and dangerous or Christian and non-Christian, uh, kids are still picking up that there's truth and lies in all of these things. And so if we tell them all of this is good— then they're eventually going to swallow some lie and something bad and think that that's okay because it was packaged in the all good category. And then on the opposite side, if we say this is all bad, you know, everybody, you know, for my, for my uh, generation, there was like certain shows we couldn't watch. uh, My parents wouldn't let me watch. So you can't do that on television. I know a lot of um, 
parents that wouldn't let their kids listen to Madonna. It wouldn't really deal with me. I just, I listened to all Christian music anyway. Yeah. But um, when you get old enough to where you start sifting through, all of a sudden you start seeing, wow, th- there are some true things here that, that maybe the people that I was told are bad. There's some true things that they're pointing out that maybe they are pointing out ways that there's been oppression. Maybe they are pointing out ways that some people have been mistreated. If I've now categorized that as all bad, I'm going to go back and instead of saying, well, it's good to oppress people, I'm going to go back and say, my parents lied to me, my church lied to me, what else have they lied to me about? And at that point, I have zero discernment on how to pick through and figure out what is the good and what is the true uh, aspects in everything. And so apologetics, uh, a lot of times, is a focus on... The evidences, right? You know, you think of the classical apologetics. What are the evidences for God? What are the evidences for Jesus? Well, we got to go back a step, uh, a, a step back, and say what constitutes evidence, because right. this right now is up for grabs. That kids don't even know what constitutes evidence, and like we talked about in the previous segment, suddenly emotions are this really big thing that oh, that's evidence for something. Hmm. No. <laughs> Emotions are what they are. They're not really evidence. They're, they're evidence that something's going on, but it's not telling us which direction to go. So I think the apologetics is important in order to really, uh, we call it the chew and spit method in the book, which we go, <laughs> it sounds kind of gross, but we go into it a lot in, um, in chapter three. And uh, just being able to kind of chew and spit through everything that we see in culture and be able to build that worldview that is good and pleasing to God, that is based on scripture that picks up on messages no matter where they come from if they're true saying yes they're pointing out truth and i i know where in scripture this this matches up and maybe out of the same side of that person's mouth maybe the next sentence might be something false okay i'm going to say that that's not true because it doesn't align with scripture yes yes having that discernment i think is the number one skill we can give to our kids and then we don't have to worry as much about what they're watching what they're hearing what they're hearing in the news and on tv shows if they know how to chew and spit how to pick through things we are going to have a kid who sees how the good contributes to a good and flourishing society and how the things that scripture is against maybe are not contributing to a good and flourishing society or are just going against the precepts of god and yes. that right there, the world makes sense. We want a world that makes sense. To what them. you know, what you're saying is really important, Hillary. I was thinking, I was kind of laughing a little bit when you were mentioning music because I have actually had occasions when I will be listening to Christian music in the car, and some bad theology actually comes out of the singer's <laughs> mouth, and I turn to my kid and I listen to a lot of Christian music too, older stuff mainly, not not the newer stuff. I'm too much of a dinosaur for a lot of the new stuff, but I'll go back and I'll, I'll hear one line and I'll say, now that's not true that's actually not biblical Uh do you know why and then my child hopefully will give the right answer we've had some great discussions that way but i i also think that that's very important because you have to be discerning sometimes inside your church just like you Mm -hmm. have to be discerning of the world and and to recognize truth from error is a skill that bible you know the bible clearly says we need to have something else that you talk about you talk about all these different false worldviews that need to be addressed and it's so important a couple more that you mentioned really intrigue me, one of which is addressing the new spirituality. Can you speak yes. to how you address that? Sometimes we just call it paganism or, or what have you, but how do you do apologetics to train your kids to see this in culture and to reject it based on the Word of God? What sorts of tips do you have? Um, I think one of the biggest tips is actually found in Chapter 4 on linguistic theft. 
is that we have a whole bunch of words that have basically been taken and they've been redefined and then they've been put back on us as if, oh, well, this is what you believe as a Christian. See, I'm using all the same words. <laughs> and I would say the new spirituality is really good at doing that. They, they are good with, they, they really want to have love. They want to have unity. They, they want to have uh, intimacy. They want, there's a one the key one that I'm missing out on here. Um, uh, well, we'll just go with those three right now, the, the love, unity, <clears throat> Uh, and they're, they're presenting it in this light, in this goodness, and they've redefined what the gospel is. They've redefined who Jesus is. I mean, if you look at a lot of the new spirituality, they they have something that's actually called Christ consciousness, yes, where yes. Jesus was a man who recognized who he was before God, and once he came into this knowledge of his, you know, saneness with God, then he had all the powers that we see Jesus had. And so we're not worshiping Jesus as, um, you know, wanting to become like Jesus in the sense of we're man, he's God, we want to reflect him. It's more like he was a man who became God, and we are men who can become God. And that's how we're supposed to be following Jesus. And they'll use all the same language of we just follow Jesus, we just do what Jesus did. But they have so radically defined who Jesus is and what the gospel is. The gospel is coming out of this slumber of recognizing, you know, that you have the ability within yourself, Scott Hopper, to attain this level of spirituality that he did. And so all the same words are used, and it's really confusing, especially for people who are new believers. So I think that one of the number one things we can do for uh, for the new spirituality and for progressive Christianity is we need to go back and create a really good lexicon of what do all these words mean and be able to identify when they have been linguistically accepted and someone's taking them and changed the definition and then said, see, you're a Christian, you're supposed to believe this. And you're sitting there going, yes, I am. The Bible says I am supposed to believe that, but something doesn't feel right. Exactly. I can't quite identify it. Exactly. Oh, yeah. It's just as true with progressive Christianity as it is with uh, new spirituality or even Marxism. And there, mm-hmm. some of these people really are experts at picking up biblical language and twisting it. And that is, you know, such an important skill for every Christian to have, to be able to spot it, to spot the twisting and to be able to unravel it with the Bible. Mm-hmm. So what do you advise moms to do who are listening, who are saying, I really would like to begin to teach my child how to be discerning to have a biblical worldview and to really have that be a conviction, not so much appropriating these views because mommy said so, but because, you know, you're trusting that the Lord will work in your the heart and the life of your child. What should I do first if I'm a mom who wants to begin this process? Well, I think, um, well, first off, you know, shameless plug here, I think to really understand what's going on, to see the changes that have taken place, to see the worldviews that are at play you really first need to educate yourself on what those are. So, right. of course, <laughs> I'm going to say, I think your first step should be to get the Mama Bear Apologetics book. There you go. Um, <laughs> uh, but it, it's for the purposes of the, the feedback that I've gotten from so many women is that every, oh, well, I won't say everything, but a lot of the stuff in this book, they're saying, I saw this going on and I didn't have words for it. So <laughs> I just want to encourage women to say, this isn't dumping a whole bunch of new information into your brain. This is picking up on stuff that you've probably already picked up on, and now it's going to give you the words. And once you have the words, like literally, it doesn't matter where you go, what cartoon you watch, what movie you watch, what craft fair you go to, 
you will have so many teaching opportunities around you that you just can't unsee anymore. You know, (laughs) the number of things that say follow your heart, the number of things that say you do you, the number of advertisements that say you deserve blah, blah, blah. (sighs) And um, what was the one that I posted on my Instagram? It was this one that says it's all about you. And I'm like, is it so? Is it? Is it really all about us? Yep. There's all these silly questions that you can ask your kids and make it kind of a fun game to let, you know, let's spot the bad ideas out here in culture. And, you know, thank you, culture, for giving us so many opportunities. They're everywhere. So you don't have to go and read a million books. Just get familiar with the ideas and then just look around. Get going. Yeah, I love it. Mama Bear Apologetics, Hillary Morgan Ferrer. Thank you so much, Hillary, for being here. It was great to talk to you. Great to talk to you, too. All right. God bless. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. We're wanting to save 250 preborn babies this January by offering free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. You can help by calling 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Well, this is interesting. The Supreme Court recently denied a motion that sought to expedite a case that is asking the courts to repeal Obamacare. And according to Vox, in practical terms, that is a double victory for Republicans. It leaves open the possibility that Obamacare will be killed by a judicial decree, but spares Republican candidates from the media spotlight that would come from a high-profile Supreme Court fight involving a challenge to the Affordable Care Act. Well, regardless of where things end up as to the constitutionality of Obamacare, American Consumers have to deal with how to pay their medical costs in the interim. And according to the New York Times, more than a million Americans have dealt with the challenge by joining healthcare sharing ministries, which have premiums far lower than that of traditional health insurance policies, along with other benefits. So we're going to get some thoughts now from Matt Bellis, Chief Communications Officer for Liberty HealthShare, a national nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry. And so good to have you with us, Matt. How are you today? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you for having me. Well, it's always nice to talk to you. And I know this is a story that's close to your heart when you have a million people who say, you know, health insurance, the third party system is no longer for me. What do you hear from people about why Liberty HealthShare is popular? Why this mode of paying for medical costs is so popular and why people are really flocking to change the way that they've been paying for their medical costs? Well, of course, I can't speak for every person that I see out there. Uh, but uh, there are uh, those who join Liberty HealthShare and healthcare sharing purely based on the fact that healthcare has become unaffordable. And within healthcare sharing, there is an aspect of it that is that affordability. Now, there, that, this goes beyond the measure of just saying this is something that they can, uh, they can spend on or this is cheap or, or whatever, because the mission of Liberty Health Share really is to bring that Christian tradition of healthcare sharing and make it available and affordable to all. So we have affordability in our name because if you have a healthcare system that no one can actually spend on, uh, or if you have a way to pay for healthcare, that is almost cost prohibitive to people because they can't meet an aspect of the plan, then it's also immoral. 
because we have a system in place that has seen rising costs all throughout from uh, the year 2000 up until today, healthcare costs have risen some 40%, uh, 20% within the past decade. And so we have seen an amazing shift where people are saying now is the time to understand what else is out there in the world because affordability drives it. Now, once they're a member of Liberty HealthShare, their reasons quickly change. But I'll leave that for uh, for other people to discover. <laughs> well, that's right. Well, talk about the costs that are involved in healthcare sharing, how it works for those who aren't familiar with this way of doing things. Well, each and every month, our members send in what's called a share amount. That share amount is directed by Liberty HealthShare to go to another member who has a need. This is direct member-to-member, person-to-person cost sharing. This isn't uh, sending money to Liberty HealthShare. This is sending money to another member who has a need. Liberty HealthShare doesn't have a fund that we keep everything in. We actually send that money off, it comes in, it goes right over towards a member's account, and we do it all online. It's a very simple system. It goes at the click of a button. But it really is based on that idea of community involvement and membership where you are actually bearing one another's burdens. A quick uh, story to, to share this, how this actually works Uh, I actually heard from another uh, radio uh, uh, producer where they were at an event that took up a collection for somebody at that event to help pay for their deductible for their third-party pay system because they couldn't afford it. Oh, man. And I said... Even in the third-party pay system, healthcare sharing is being utilized to help pay for it because that's exactly what we do. Yeah. We are a community that shares in those medical expenses. That's a good point. People resort to sharing when the third-party payer system fails them. That's, I mean, that is perfect. That's exactly what's going on. Are, are there certain expenses, though, that Liberty HealthShare does not cover because anybody who is transferring from a third-party payer not only you know policy that they may have had all of their lives, but also just changing their mindset. That's probably one of the questions that comes up. What sorts of things are covered? What sorts of things aren't covered? Is it going to be a lot different from insurance? Well, you just hit it on the head right there when you said it. This is about a change in mindset and a change in ways that you actually take your health care back into control of your own hands and responsibility. So no longer are you paying for things that you wouldn't pay for in any event. You wouldn't pay for uh, things that would pertain to you. I wouldn't pay for maternity services. I'm sure that you wouldn't pay for prostate uh, services. Right. Uh, that wouldn't be necessary for other people. So uh, those things that are are burdensome to a, a cost basis for a uh, for an individual, uh, we wouldn't pay for those. But we also don't pay for things that would violate our conscience. We're a Christian nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry. So we're not going to pay for those things that are going to violate our conscience. Uh, But there are other things that, frankly, just aren't necessary to pay for. Things like dental and things like uh, uh, eyewear, where, you know, you can plan for those expenses, be responsible with the savings that you have from healthcare sharing, and utilize those for things that you would uh, want to take care of in in your own uh, within your own pocketbook. It's just a change of way of thinking to from a dependency model 
to a model where you own your health care again, and that changes the mindset. Well, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up, Matt, because one of the things that I know we've said around our house for a long time is, you know, insurance would be a lot cheaper if you didn't expect your insurance company to cover absolutely everything, you know, that's what drives right. the costs up. I mean, the more that you expect the insurance company to pay for this, that, every little thing. And now we're to the point, many people are saying, boy, my, my insurance company doesn't seem like they cover anything because I have to pay such a huge deductible. And on top of that, I'm paying gigantic premiums. I, I need some relief here, Matt. It's almost becoming untenable because I've seen people who say just exactly that same thing. It's almost as if I don't uh, have insurance because in order to get the benefits from it, I have to spend so much money to get there. Right. When the average cost of a health care bill is anywhere from 700 to to $1,000, and then you have $20,000 worth of uh, deductible, it's really hard to get there in a year. Uh, You'd have to have some major medical bills. So really, it does change the whole model whenever you're talking about health care sharing, because this is predicated upon responsibility, respecting the individual, empowering them with the resources that they need to be uh, to work with their doctor to be empowered by a community to, co- to call the shots, to make the decisions within their health care. It changes <clears throat> that model completely. Yeah. What about on the opposite end of the spectrum? Matt, this is something many people will be concerned about or at least want to get the information. What about catastrophic situations? For example, one of the members of my family ends up in a coma and has to be in the hospital for weeks on end and it, it just running up into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. What does healthcare sharing offer along those lines in, in catastrophic situations that nobody ever wants to face. This is where healthcare sharing shines the most because within catastrophic situations, that is the purpose and reason why Liberty Health Share uh, is here to help our members. Healthcare sharing in its beginning was there to help for catastrophic uh, issues. We deal with heart attacks, quadruple bypass surgeries, with premature births, uh, with catastrophic accidents, car accidents, all the time. And it's our members who come together to help share in those medical expenses that pay those off all the time. And the fact is, because of the way that we pay for them uh, and the way that we do health care, the expenses that are hundreds of thousands of dollars quickly get reduced 50, 60, 70, sometimes 80 to 90% off of what the bill charges are. Wow. So what people look at as catastrophic becomes much more manageable. Very good. Well, you can check it out. LibertyHealthShare.org is the website. Take a look at it. Matt Bellis with us from Liberty HealthShare, a national nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry. Always good to chat with you, Matt. Thanks a lot for stopping by. Thanks, Janet. All right. God bless. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today. It's Sanctity of Human Life Month, the month we set aside each year to remember the millions of lives lost through the scourge of abortion. But even while we mourn the loss of so many babies, pro-abortion politicians in the House of Representatives are looking to push legislation that would expand access to abortion. It's more important than ever before to fight for human life. That's why we're partnering with the Ministry of Preborn. Preborn funds pregnancy centers across the nation so they can offer free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancy. 
pregnancies. Ultrasound is a game changer because when abortion-minded women actually see their babies in their wombs for themselves, 80% of the time, they choose life. We want to save the lives of 250 pre-born children this January, and we know it can be done, but we do need your help. Would you please join us at Janet Meffer today to support the ministry of preborn and give life to 250 babies this January? For $140, you can provide five free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. A gift of $22 will provide one ultrasound, and every gift helps. To donate, please call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. All gifts are tax deductible, and 100% of your gift goes directly towards saving babies. Think of the children in the womb this January. You can get involved, and you can help save a life for a gift of $140. Five free ultrasounds will be offered to women in crisis pregnancies. During the Sanctity of Human Life Month, let's do more than talk about abortion. Let's save some lives. Please call now with your gift, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, I want to start out with a personal word of thanks. We had a listener yesterday who single-handedly saved the lives of 20 preborn babies. And we just want to say a huge thank you. It means so much to us that you will help preborn babies live through this great ministry of preborn. And if you're just tuning in, this is Sanctity of Human Life Month. And we here at Janet Mefford today are partnering with the ministry preborn. And they do wonderful work at all these pregnancy centers across the country. They offer free ultrasounds to abortion-minded women who come in. Sometimes they're not really so sure they want to go through with the abortion. Other times they're very sure they want to go through with the abortion. But eight out of 10 times, if a woman gets a free ultrasound, she'll choose life. And your gift of $28 will sponsor one ultrasound session. We're trying to save 250 babies by the end of this week, and we have 57 to go. So if you have been considering giving to the great work of preborn, today's the day. Let me give you the phone number. It's 855-402-BABY. 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. I'll say it again. 855-402-2229. Or you can click on the preborn banner at JanetMefford.com. But we really appreciate every single gift that comes in, big or small. We will accept them all. They're all going to go straight to the cause of life. 100% of your gift is tax deductible. And we're not putting it toward overhead or anything like that. It's going to go right toward funding those ultrasounds. So call now, 855-402-2229. We just need to save 57 more babies. That's it. And then we will be hitting our goal. And I know how generous you guys are. So I know we can do it. And we thank the Lord for you. All right. I want to get into this very briefly in case you are planning on watching the Super Bowl this weekend. I, I have to say, I've never been a huge football fan in general. I'm, I'm very much a Fairweather fan. I think the last time I watched a Super Bowl was when the Bears 
went to the Super Bowl in 86. That's how much of a Fairweather fan I was. It was only because everybody else in Chicago was watching it, so I didn't want to get on board. But not much of a football fan. But I'll tell you, I have different reasons for not wanting to tune in these days to much of anything on TV, including the Super Bowl, because of the rot. The rot that often accompanies the advertisements that are on the TV during the Super Bowl. A lot of them are funny, but a lot of them are raunchy. And it's just getting to this level of insanity. Here, here's the story. This is via NBC News. They're going to have their first drag queen ad. Oh, that's so awesome. This is what they say. Drag queens for the first time will appear in a Super Bowl ad. RuPaul's Drag Race alumni Kim Chi and Ms. Cracker will make history in a commercial for Hummus brand Sabra during the football championship game when the Kansas City Chiefs will face the San Francisco 49ers. In the teaser for the ad campaign, which the New York-based company posted on its YouTube channel last week, Ms. Cracker clumsily attempts to put a football helmet on over her sizable wig. Okay, it's a dude. We don't use the pronoun her when we're talking about a man. It's man, hence the term drag queen. We don't call women drag queens, do we? We call men who dress up as over-the-top women drag queens. I'm done with the pronoun thing. Sorry. Uh, I hope this doesn't give me helmet hair, he says, while the other drag queen looks on skeptically. Now, here's what's very notable about this. They quote a man by the name of Bob Witek, a longtime marketing strategist who specializes in reaching LGBTQ audiences. He called the ad revolutionary. For queer audiences, Bob Witek said, it is an art form. An art form, right. It's just like the Mona Lisa. Sure. In an outsider's language, he's speaking of drag, reaching the Super Bowl means taking our language into every home in the nation and millions around the world. Witek said the Sabra ad, which could reach around 100 million viewers during the Super Bowl, is indicative of a sea change in the public perception of drag, which he said has been normalized in the mainstream for many years, thanks in large part to the success of RuPaul's Drag Race. Well, pat yourself on the back, Bob Witek. I'm sure you're just doing a wonderful, tremendous service to the world by getting drag queens onto the Super Bowl ad lineup fantastic. By the way, last I checked, these companies who are paying to have these ads created and paying the money to the network in order to get them to play for 100 million people, they want you to buy the product. But Bob Witek and company, it's all about normalizing drag. That's all it is to them. Does it really matter what the drag queens are pushing as long as the drag queens are being seen and celebrated? Then we're normalizing drag. It's fantastic. Give yourself a standing ovation, Bob Witek. I'm not going to be watching. And I hope other people will follow suit on that because I'm, I'm sick of it. I'm sick of this stuff being normalized. I'm sick of this stuff being shoved down everybody's throats as some kind of harmless fun. It's not fun. It's not normal. It's not right. It's not moral, period. Any of those things. The mere fact that we don't have people from sea to shining sea screaming their heads off about these drag queen story hours in our libraries shows you how far we have fallen as a country and how desperately we need the Lord to turn things around. Here's another reason the Lord needs to turn this country around. This is from the New York Post. What are they teaching in New York City preschools? I bet you can guess. At one taxpayer-funded Brooklyn nursery, it isn't numbers, letters, or nap time, but racism and victimhood 
plus transgender and queer rights with a heavy dose of political indoctrination in the mix. One father of a preschooler said, I was kind of horrified. They say they're trying to reduce racism and discrimination. To me, they're perpetuating it, fomenting a sense of victimhood that four-year-olds would never consider on their own. In an email to parents and caregivers, teacher Rosie Clark lays out lessons based on the Black Lives Matter Week of Action for a pre-K class at PS58 located in well-regarded District 15 in Carroll Gardens. This year, the week is February 3rd through 7th. That's next week. We're starting to talk about these ideas now as we approach Martin Luther King Day, which was just passed. And as we prepare to go into February Black History Month, this is a white teacher. The student population is also mainly Caucasian. I'm lucky enough to work at this wonderful school where we strive to help our students understand the complex world around them and think critically about how they can participate in improving it. Because lots of four-year-olds are about improving the world. Yeah, okay. Or maybe they're just about nap time and who gets the second cookie. Uh, One of the ways I do that in my classroom is by exploring the 13 principles of the movement for black lives. I will not be discussing police brutality or current events with the class. These issues are obviously too traumatizing for this age group. So they're going to talk about diversity and empathy and loving their neighbors. But then there's principle number six, transgender affirming. Everybody has the right to choose their own gender by listening to their own heart and mind. Everyone gets to choose if they are a boy or a girl or both or neither or something else, and no one gets to choose for them. Number seven, queer affirming. The principle here is that everybody has the right to choose who they love and the kind of family they want by listening to their own heart and mind. Isn't that what the problem was during the time of the judges? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. How did that turn out? I don't care how political you are or how self-righteous you are about your politics. You can't change reality. You can't create reality. And you can't deny the creator God who is evident in all of the creation around you and to whom you know instinctively you are accountable. You know it because Romans 1 says it quite clearly. Though they understand by what has been created that there is a creator, what do they do? They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. This is what's going on. Who in their right mind would ever foist this garbage on four-year-olds, much less full-grown adults? I mean, full-grown adults is bad enough. Why would you go to little kids? There's only one reason you would go to little kids, and that is indoctrination and normalization. As I've said on many occasions, you don't have to normalize stuff that's normal, do you? Think about this. Do you have to convince most little boys, or let's say teenage boys, that girls are cute I mean, or vice versa do you really need to tell a girl you know over there that's a boy and boys are good looking and that one is really good looking and that one is smart and like you you don't have to talk somebody into something that's normal because it will happen organically it will happen without anybody prodding it or pushing it or creating a propaganda campaign to shove it down your throat you'll know it and you don't need anybody to normalize the normal you only need people to normalize the abnormal And that's why we're seeing all this normalization garbage. And they're going after the kids. Let me tell you something. I'm going to give a very brief ad here of my own for our God's Voice Conference 2020. It's coming up April 17th and 18th. We are going to 
address this stuff head on. Last year, we talked a lot about revoice, a biblical response to the revoicing, the queering of the church. This year, we are addressing a biblical response to LGBTQ plus tyranny. We're to the point now where you either have to accept that this stuff is going to be shoved down the throats of your kids or you're going to stand up to it. Because it's not going to stop. They're going to keep on keeping on until they have a wall of people who say no more. So that's why we're doing what we're doing. And right now we've got early bird registration. So you want to get in early. We sold out last year. We're expecting to sell out even earlier this year. You're going to want to be there. Joe Dallas, Everett Piper, Scott Lively, Peter LaBarbera, Stephen Black. I'm going to be emceeing. We have Al Baker back from last year's conference. Fabulous PCA evangelist. He's going to give us an update on all the stuff that Revoice has wrought in the Presbyterian Church in America since last year. Do not miss it. Plus, Greg Burt from the California Family Council talking about what's going on in California. You got to be there. Just go to godsvoice.us, godsvoice.us. We'll see you there. I got to go, but we'll see you next time. Take care.